everybody and welcome to JTV. So usually when I interview or invite guests on to JTV, um, they tend to be uh, have some kind of name for themselves. They might have started some great organization that does uh, fantastic work for the community and beyond. Um, but this is a little bit different because the person that I've invited on today is not extremely well known and yet does the most incredible work that I discovered a few months ago behind the scenes. And when I asked our guest if she could summarize in a sentence or two what she does, she said to me, it was just, this was just literally a few hours ago, she said to me, I'm trying to give a voice to the voiceless. And that is exactly what I want to do right now, which is to show you some incredible work that goes, uh, that, that sort of happens behind the scenes without many people knowing. And actually sometimes that can be the most powerful forms of kindness because there's no great stature or great reward that comes with it, but it's actually the most precious kind of it. And um, this, this lady is called Miriam Pollack-Schwartz. I met her uh, in New York when I visited New York in December, just a few months ago. Um, and she, her, her, her purpose really is to provide care and a listening ear and resources and help in all kinds of ways to people that have experienced all kinds of trauma and challenge and difficulty in their lives where they feel as if the world has just turned their backs on them. And Miriam, thank you so much for joining us from New York, from Woodmere, New York. Um, really appreciate your time and I'm so glad that you agreed to, to do this interview because I know this is the first kind of public interview that you've done and I just feel so passionately when I sat down and heard about you uh, and when you told me about your life journey um, I felt so compelled to want to share this with others because I walked away inspired uh, having spoken to you. So before we talk about the work that you do can you tell us about you? Tell us about your journey, your story, because your life has had a lot of blessings, but it's also had a lot of challenges. Um, so will you, will you take us through that? So first off, thanks for having me. It's been, it's a pleasure. It's an honor. I'm humbled. It is the first time that I do this because what I do is not for publicity. It's not for advertisement. It's just to make a difference in the world. So Thanks for having me. Walk you through my life. I was born and raised in South America, in Uruguay, to a Holocaust survivor, Satma Chassid of a father, and a Chabad mom from New York. And after the Holocaust, they had five, six kids in New York, five kids, and then they moved to Uruguay, which was pretty much a third world country. The Jewish community was very small. It was mostly Holocaust surviving community. And my mom was the only one that was American that didn't speak Hungarian. And she was always like the outsider. She was always, she never belonged. She never fit in there. She, she, she didn't go through the Holocaust. She couldn't relate. And I think that observing that as a child, that journey of watching my mom being the outsider, the misunderstood one, um, was a left a very, very big imprint on me. Like she was never part of social things in school, which affected me as a child because if I made a play and she didn't come, that was for me. What I didn't realize is she had no one to talk to her. She had no one that looked at her. She had no one that appreciated her for who she was. But as I got a bit older, I was very, very different than all my siblings. Oh, did I mention I'm one of 13? I have eight sisters and four brothers. So I guess from a very young age, I was very empathetic and I felt too much and I loved and cared too much that I became the different child. I've become just like my mom. I was different. I was, no one understood. No one understood that I cared, that I rooted for the underdog. That materialistic things didn't matter to a six-year-old. But it was like, I, I just couldn't. I went for every person that hurt and took them in. But to give credit to my parents, I was also raised in a home that chesed, bringing in people, was like the number one. We were raised on chesed 
in our respect. There was no such thing, you were a chassid, we were different kinds of Jewish people, we were all a Jewish nation that had different traditions or minhagim, whichever way you want to put it, but the love and respect had to be across the board. It was never accepted in our house to treat anyone different. So when so many different people come through your house at such a young age, and you're very empathetic, you pick up and see a lot of pain from a lot of people that pretty much affected the rest of my life would be in short. At the age of 12, I had to come to America to high school because we didn't have a film school in our way. And just put it nicely, that was a culture shock for me, like beyond, because in South America, we were the firmest family after the rabbi's family. My father, we were Strymel, Beckett, we were Hasidish. We were really, really from. But we were, we were religious on what my father believed is what the Torah says, not cultural things like what kind of chassid you are. So when I came to New York, like a simple example, which I don't know how many people will understand that, um, we don't go swimming together, men and women, right? So we swim separately. In our home, we had a pool. So women swim separately. We wore a bathing suit. I came to America and I was told that even swimming with women only, I have to wear a t-shirt on top of my bathing suit. And that was like super confusing. Like all those little things that they made up along the way. To me, my childish or my thought of thinking was this cannot be what Hashem, what God wanted for Judaism. This can't be it. It can become a cult. And if you do certain things, what I learned when you came to America, certain statuses, whether it's financially, your title of your name, whatever it is, according to that goes the respect for Judaism. And I just couldn't accept that. It didn't work for me. I, I didn't think that's what God would have wanted. Right. I understand. And, and uh, I, in many ways, I, I can relate to that. I think there's Torah and Halakha, and then there's, you know, stringencies beyond that. And uh, it's actually considered to be, um, you know, wrong to add unnecessary stringency, you know, to add more than the Torah uh, kind of prescribes. Um, and because it can do unnecessary, create unnecessary, um, you know, suffocation on individual autonomy. Um, so I, I certainly relate to that. But do you want to take us into your kind of uh, married years and adult years and all the kind of... Uh, all right. So <laughs> I got married at 17. I was divorced at 21 with twin daughters. And I'm trying to think, but even while I was married, I was married to a shidduch, the traditional Hasid, the shidduch, it was not for me. There's nothing bad to say about him or about me. It just didn't work. We were very different. There was not... There wasn't the life I wanted. I remember growing up, I was in my house. Were you, were you, um, did you think at the time when you got married, you know, this, this could work or did you feel? Oh, so that's where I'm going with this. I knew that the kind of home I want, this guy can't give me. But I also understood the respect that my parents and my family can never accept the life I want. I was 17. Remember, I was a child. So... I knew that I had to give it the most I've done. I have to do it because this is how I was raised. Your parents tell you, this is what you do and this is what you do. And you trust them and you believe them. And I'm number eight. And seven were married fine successfully. So why would they think something is different? But um, no, I knew this doesn't stand the chance because the way they were raised in the Hasidish yeshiva sphere and the Hasidish schools, in my humble opinion, um, no one to judge, I don't think they, fo they focus on the, on the priorities the way they should focus. Like whether the way I dress, that's between me and God. It's, it's, it's a thing that I have to feel that spirituality, that love of Hashem, that love of God, and want to do certain things, feel like a princess, dress properly. But teaching you right from wrong, teaching you not to disrespect someone else because he's not the same kind of Jew as you, that part I, I, I just couldn't. It was... No, and, and I would stand up and say what I had to say, and it did not go that well. Because 
that's I, I honestly don't think that this is what Judaism should have been. If you take if you take the, the Ten Commandments, like you say, and you follow the Ten Commandments, everything we buy in life comes with a manual. Your car, your sh everything, besides children. That's why we manage to mess them up. But if you think about life, it does come with a manual. And if you look at the Ten Commandments, not even as a Jew, as a human, that's your manual to having a successful, beautiful, real life. So if you follow the manual, you will be successful. But if you add your own things to the manual, things happen. And I feel that's what happened. Every person, every rabbi or every, I'm not sure what to call them, thought they understood at a deeper level or to protect the future generation. I feel made choices that hurt a lot of people in our community, especially the youth. Listen, I, I, I didn't grow up in a, in a religious uh, uh, community, um, but I, as I grew in my observance through my teen years and also through some of my experiences through becoming friends with people that grew up in that or in dating, I've seen some of the beauty within the religious world, but also some of these problems that happen in pockets of, of uh, the truth is any religious community where you get uh, elements of extremism of sometimes not seeing the wood for the trees where you're very focused on sort of checkbox lists of doing things but actually you miss seeing the full person the bigger picture um realizing that every single person is created in god's image everyone has their own unique role in this world even if it might not be you know it's i i recently put out a video on this channel about you know when people talk about is someone from or not it's such a one-dimensional term because, well, exactly, because there are, as I mentioned previously, there's this woman that a rabbi of mine uh, has as one of his uh, shul members who isn't particularly observant, but every Friday night will invite the divorcee, the socially awkward person, the one that no one else wants to invite to her table to make sure no one goes without a meal on Friday night. And he said, is she from? Well, According to one definition, maybe not, but how many from people are doing that? You know, so it's, it's, it's sometimes there's a narrowness um, that isn't Jewish. It's not Jewish way of looking at things. And um, I think it's just, uh, it's just a, a misinterpretation. Um, but do you want to take us, so, so take us past that. So you got divorced at age... So I got divorced, I was 21 years old and I had twins. And I had been very sick right before I almost died from the measles. I made the most severe case of measles in my mom's hospital. And I was a kid with two children, practically. And I actually went to Florida to recover. That was like my first major incident that I can share with you, that I can remember how, what an effect it had. So I went to Florida with my twins and a whole bunch of our friends. I was 22 and there was a single guy there. He was 19 and Shabbos afternoon, we were just sitting and schmoozing. And he tells me that all those married guys, all my friends and married guys um, borrowed money from the mob. Now you're talking 32, 33 years ago, okay? They he borrowed monies mom. from the mob, $10,000 and he's the guarantor and no one has money to pay it back. And I remember sitting there going, okay, I'll make you a deal. I'll lend you the money, but on one condition, you walk away from this entire thing and you clean up your act. Get a real job. Don't try to become a mega rich and do the right thing. He took the offer. He paid them back. And he moved into my house for a while. He had different kind of experiences in life. He had his ups, he had his downs. But then... He got married and he has a family and he's in the world of Chinuch today. And he was telling my brother a couple just of years ago. Just to explain for our viewers, Chinuch means education. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so he was telling a couple of years ago, there's one person that literally saved his life that he would take a bullet for was me, that I had no clue what I did by giving him hope by giving him the money, by believing in him that he'll pay it back for me. I was a single mom. I didn't have it either. Just by believing in him that he can actually return it, that he can make something out of himself. He turned his entire life around. And I remember thinking, wow, 
it, it was such an exhilarating feeling to see the kid going to sleep without fear that he's going to get killed or his expression was on swimming with the fishies. And it was such an exhilarating feeling to see like, I never spoke about religion. It was about, at that point, the young, the youth was gambling. It wasn't drugs. And I started going to these illegal houses where they gambled and pay off their debt and get a lot and never gamble again. So automatically they become your kids. You gotta look out for them. You protect them. You, I wasn't much older than them, but it was like a very surreal feeling. And what I noticed is that they were invisible. And when the guys came after him, the from guys, the, the religious guys that used him to borrow the money to use it again, and he couldn't stand up. That was the first time that I felt I gave the voice to the voiceless. I literally wrote him down what he was going to say. And he got up there and he told him, I ain't doing this again. I'm not your fool if you guys want to do whatever I wrote. And he came out of there and he's like, I heard your voice in my ears. It was like you were talking. It was amazing. I got it done. And he was so excited about it. And I'm like, wow, it is so easy to make someone's day so happy. Like, okay, what can I do next? And it literally almost became like an addiction. I would drive down Ocean Parkway, pick up children off the benches that were spilling out of their whatever, and just bring them home, clean them up, try to make sure. If you live in the house, there's two things. You either go to school or you go to rehab. Like you can just chill. That's not, I, I work for a living. And it started becoming like one brought the other and a chain effect. And I married, started marrying them off and seeing them have families. And it was like, in my mind, all I kept thinking is what am I doing different than everyone else? And what I noticed is that there's one thing, I'm a loving, caring, accepting mom that accepted them, never judged them, didn't ask any question, was just there to believe in them, to root in them. Because I'm a very, very strong believer. If God wanted to create, I have three daughters, three me, he would have flown three little me's. He didn't. He gave me three individual beautiful souls with such different personalities. And as a mom, my job is to encourage them to teach them how to use their strengths, their, their talents, whatever it is they have, and become the best version of them. And I, I, I want to get on to continue with your life story in a second. Yeah. Just to pause for a minute, what, what did you find as some of the um, sort of common experiences that these people had, perhaps in childhood or whatever? What were some of the messages that they had somehow inculcated into their brains that led them to you know be at such a, a, a in a, such a low place so i find first of all i want to apologize to anyone if i come off like i'm judging anyone or if i'm making a statement across the board about everyone from my personal experience i have twins that are 34 and then i have a 20 year old i find the 34 year old generation was a lot more about sexual molestation and abuse. Whether they had teachers or counselors or whatever it is, most, a lot of those kids um, were sexually molested and ended up here. I mean, going, trying to feel better with themselves, feeling guilty. So you start drinking or smoking, whatever it is. And explain to us, what is the, what is, what is the guilt they're feeling? What's the guilt? It's, it's a very interesting question, and I'm happy you're asking me that, because when a child gets molested, um, they don't know that this is wrong, correct? Take a five-year-old, a six-year-old, even a nine-year-old. They don't know that what's being done to them now is wrong. So a lot of those children will enjoy it because it is a pleasurable thing, and they don't realize that something is being done wrong. And then when they get older and they discover what really happened, they were taken advantage of, they were done wrong. One of the strongest emotions is guilt and shame that that little kid enjoyed it. So I tried to explain to them, that little kid enjoyed the pleasure and that's okay, you're human, it was done something pleasurable to you. Your adult understands that you were hurt and taken advantage of. In a way, it's your subconscious protecting your conscience by not telling you that you're being great at the age of five because I don't think you can survive that. It's bad enough when you're an adult. So 
that's one of the things of guilt is that that moment of pleasure haunts them afterwards like they were equally partially at fault but they had no control over that and then comes the feeling of anger and not being hurt and not being a lot of the kids came forward and no one trusted them it was in a generation where he said we don't talk about it about it's going to affect the family for him for marriages for your siblings you didn't just accuse a rabbi that, or even a priest for that matter, or anyone in higher authority. Is today, sadly, we hear it by rabbis, by priests, by pastors, everywhere. It's across the board. It's not just a Jewish religion problem. The younger generation now, I find that I don't know where it stems from. But if they find a child that's not typical mainstream in the box, you're instantly labeled. So either you are bipolar, either you're depressed, um, you get a label. Now, no teacher, no therapist, no principal, no parent has a license to diagnose them. And the minute you put that stigma to a child, from there on, it's, a, it's all the way down. I have had a girl that when I met her, I think it was four years ago, right before Tisha Bob, she told me, and I quote, I'm crazy and that's why I need meds. I got to know her and after spending time with her, she tried to OD right before Tisha Bob. Okay, so, okay, let me rewind. I run in my house a support group once a week for teenagers that have been through rehab or have been through a psych ward. They had tried suicide, they have mental health issues, addiction, they have psychiatrists, they have medication, they have therapists, they have families. I don't know anyone that just loves them and accepts them and hugs them. And their safe space is my house. It's called Miriam's house, nothing fancy. Everyone volunteers. We have doctors, psychiatrists, therapists, volunteer-based only. Um, and they, they come there. It's their happy place. So she called me and she said, I'm in, the, in an ambulance. I was trying to OD. I took six pills and I am extremely sarcastic. I told her, why didn't you take seven? And she said, when I was thinking of your house and the other girls, I couldn't do it. So I'm like, oh my God, thank you, God, thank you. This was Friday, I told her Sunday I'll come to the hospital. I'm sitting and having a long conversation with her. And what I realized is when she was six years old, <clears throat> a sibling of hers passed away, a younger sibling. No one ever told her what happened, but because it was a large family, they used to share rooms, and she shared rooms with that sibling. She saw him have a seizure, go to the hospital, and never come back. No one explained to her death. No one explained to her anything what happened. So the family said Shiva, but she was too little. So they made her use Shiva's shoes, but run around the bungalow colony. She was holding on to his teddy bear for when he's going to come back. Now she's an adult now. And every time she would cry, she was told, um, either you cry for the Harbin Beis Amikdash, for the destruction of the temple, or I'll give you a reason to cry. You don't just cry. You're not a baby. So it has gotten so bad. Her thoughts, her, then she understood about death. So she started doing her own research and reading her own things. And the anger and the pain that came about, she never said goodbye to the kid. And she thought maybe she killed him because the seizure was in her room. And once we took care of this incident, we removed the negative emotions from this. We worked, I showed her how the brain works, the process. She's off any medication. She's on no medication. She's doing fine. She's in college. She's, she has her life back. And when I asked her who diagnosed you and she never was able to tell me who, like there was no doctor's history, but she took more meds than people we know that should be taking meds. And I feel like today's generation, that is a huge, huge factor that as soon as you're misunderstood, you're not mainstream. I don't know, maybe your parents got divorced and you're tired, you couldn't do homework. You come to school tired, she's on drugs. How do you know that? Who, who is there to jump to this conclusion to make these judgments? And the second thing, which I found very, very overwhelming for these young kids is the loneliness. I think because there's so much on their phones and on social media and whatever it takes, they're so lonely. 
And loneliness is really not a good thing. It, yeah. it's, you go into your own head and they get into bad places. So you get happy doing drugs or drinking or cutting yourself or whatever it is that they do. And then when you see them come to the house and I'll introduce you all, I wish I can ask some of them if they would come on and talk to you. When you give them a hug, that love that oozes out of them, it's like, I, I wouldn't never let go of them because you, you can literally feel their pain, their loneliness. All they want is a hug. I recently told a girl, I am so proud of you from Cincinnati. And she started crying and I said, did I offend you? She's like, no, no one ever told me that before. She's 16. Like, what do you mean you never heard I'm so proud of you? In moments like that, like my heart breaks for her. And then I'm like, okay, that's centered in me for a reason. So I can build her up. I can show her that she has the most beautiful soul. My, my line I used to the mall is you're here. That puts you in this universe for a reason. Well, like a chain, each link matters. You break one, chain falls apart. I don't care how little or big you are. Hold your head up high. Be part of the universe. Be positive. Let the positive things God has for you come to you. And you would be shocked to how great and positive things turn around in your life. It's, it's just believing in them, loving them, accepting them is, is, is the most important thing that you can give your child. Yeah. And I want to I want to I want to continue with with this this incredible um, um, community that you've created. Um, but will you just take us a bit more through your personal life journey as well? Because I I want our viewers to understand that you are someone who, as I said, has has also dealt with your fair share of adversity. And I want them to understand how much that informs the work that you do now and the person that you are now. So could you just, you know, so you got divorced in your, in your early 20s. So just, yes. you could just quickly take us through the other sort of major events. Uh, I got divorced in the early, when I was 21 to be exact with twins. Um, but it's like I told you, I, I, I was born different and I'm not saying this now to justify my changes. I remember being four years old and telling my mom to please stop having any more kids. She's got enough when she had the 10th child. I was like, mom, I will never have more than four kids. And everyone laughed that I'm a kid. And I used to say, I'm gonna drive a car and I'm gonna take all the little people that are waiting in the bus stop, I'll drive them. And everyone thought I'm such a cute child. But I guess that's really who I am because no child's dream is to drive every granny and grandpa to their house instead of a bus. So. When I got married, I got married to the typical Hasidish normal thing. But the home and the place that I wanted, I couldn't, I just couldn't do having that lifestyle. It just wasn't. He wasn't my partner. I needed a man that can stand up and say, let's do this together. I, I, I don't want to do this alone. So yeah, when I divorced though, it was not in a time when divorce was very common. And of course, there were stories and there was, rumors and there was all sorts of things and because I have grown children and there is an ex-husband and I have stepchildren we'll skip some of the stories but I've gone through like a really rough time when suddenly people were talking about me they didn't even know me they would talk to me about me like someone came to my daughter's wedding and she's standing there and she's looking and I'm like oh who do you know you know it's my daughter's wedding She's like, I can't wait to see the cow's mother. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. And I turn around and I'm like, that's me. What did you think I was gonna do here? Like, I became like this icon because most, again, I don't wanna make a broad statement, but most of the Hasidim that grew up like I grew up, when they leave Williamsburg Bar Park, they go all the way. They have a lot of hatred, resentment. Um, they don't wanna have anything to do. My issue was never that. My issue is that I really believe that this is not what God wants. He gave me a voice. He gave me, I realized from a young age that I can get anything I want just with talking. And I'm like, wait, hmm, that's a big, powerful thing to do, you know? So and I, I knew that he didn't give it to me to, to, to get jewelry or to get stuff like that. But I didn't understand of how strong the power of what I have. And that first time when 
I talked someone off at the age of 22 that was suicidal. I was like floored because I was dealing with my own personal emotional stuff. I had just gotten divorced and some very, very bright person told me, well, if your life is so miserable, why didn't you just kill yourself? And I thought for a minute, I looked and I said, nope, my life is miserable with this person. I want to change it. I don't want to die. If you've got a problem, you go kill yourself. And of course, I was called disrespectful and I'm a fit to for answering that way. But it dawned on me, no, that's, that, that is not what I want. I want to make a difference. I want to be a better, different person, not this. So, yeah, I've gone through scandals. People were talking about me. It got really bad. <clears throat> then there was this guy that decided that I will marry him because he's in love with me and he was older than me. So I don't want to sound like a Hallmark card, but it's gotten so bad, his obsession, that he showed up to a family member, my sister's husband, with a gun and threatened to hurt my family if I don't marry him. Yeah, I like the expression in your face, but um, it, it, it has gone really bad and all based on scandals and on rumors. He had no clue who I was. It was like the trophy thing. And at that point, I really found myself all alone. And I was like, you know what? No, I help others have a voice. I'm gonna have my own voice. And I had a meeting with Rabbi Pincus, Rabbi Brevka, Rabbi Rakowski, and I don't remember, and Rabbi Tauber. I was 21 years old and I pulled them all together and I said, this is my husband. This is the situation. This is what people are saying. This is my story. What do you say? And they're like, go oh, get a divorce and go like, and I was like, yes. So that was for me a very big, powerful success because I recorded it to give it to my kids one day. But on the other hand, I woke up the next morning and I was the most doomed person in Borough Park. Everywhere they were talking about me. Like the people that would usually sit with me and talk to me would just suddenly pretend they don't see me across the street. And I was like, no problem. You do what you gotta do. I'll do what I gotta do. You don't get a right to destroy my life. I'm gonna figure it out. I'm here for a reason. If God wanted to take me. It was pretty tough. I got a job. I settled down. And then I married. And it was, again, a bit dramatic as usual, all the stories. And then four years later, five, six years later, he passed away from cancer. So now I had twins from a divorced marriage, a little three-year-old as a widow. And I had to move back to New York because I lived in Israel at that point. And when I got back to New York, they stole the container with all my things inside. So basically, I lost my husband, my best friend, my job, my house, my everything. I was everything less. And they took the container with everything we had. We stayed with our clothing on our back. I remember driving my girls to school. They were 16 at that point. And I turned on the radio. And for whatever reason, the song Anachnu Maminim Bnei Maminim came on. Translation is, we are believers, the children of believers. And I heard one of my daughters, Tangel, and I really think she snapped this time. She's gone. She's lost it. And I'm like, no, I didn't. We were all girls. What if they break into the house to hurt my daughters? What if they do something to me? Materialistic things come and go, I'll either get it back or I might never get it back. But if they hurt my child? I could never, ever <clears throat> survive that. So we started all over again. But I couldn't tell the people that used to come to my house, don't come because I'm flat broke. So I had five single dads that used to come every shower and every hug with their kids. Some of them are married. Some of them have kids, the children. And I literally stand in the grocery and decide if I want milk or juice. But at home, if you interview those kids, they'll tell you, when we pulled up to my house, it was everyone's happy zone. It was like so much love and simcha and joy, and I had nothing. But I kept on, what kept on, kept me going is A, I have three beautiful children, and I don't get a license to destroy their lives because God gave me challenges. 
my husband passed away, father, stepfather, step up as a mom, I got divorced. So getting depressed, getting miserable, going down was never an option. I had to make sure my kids grow up as healthy as possible. So part of them growing up as healthy as possible was inviting guests every single Shabbat. So my kids were never those poor little children that were every Shabbat somewhere else because they were either divorced parents or orphan. Uh-uh. So everything happened in my house. So my child will always feel like she was the queen of the castle. She was never, my kids were never victims. Victims is not in our vocabulary. We're survivors. So what next? <laughs> okay. Um, wow. I started literally driving around the streets, picking up children, taking them in, cleaning them up. And I became mocked to like, I don't know how many people. Um, thank God I have a zero results of um, suicide. The, the person that we'll talk soon about will get to the commit suicide was as close as I came, but We'll get to that soon. What came next was that I, I was a woman on a mission. I was a woman to take children that I found with broken hearts and make sure that they stay alive. And how do you, how do, you do that when you yourself are feeling so much uh, in a, not necessarily turmoil because you seem to have clarity, but in a pain and in a, feeling a bit hard done by? How do you become a fountain? How do you overflow joy and care when you yourself might feel somewhat, you know, shriveled by, by events? I don't think, I'll tell you an interesting thing. Right after my late husband passed away, I had a friend and my brother that helped me a lot. And I don't know if it was two or three months later, I surprised them with their credit cards and I booked them all a beautiful, both couples, cruise. And I went as far as sending along music and candles, like set of the most beautiful, thank you. They paid for it, but I made all the arrangements. And I remember my friends left calling and telling me, Miriam, you just lost your husband, you lost everything. How can you plan my vacation? And I said, because my life, my challenge was this, but I still want everyone else to be happy. If God wanted you to be miserable, he would have done to you, but he didn't. He gave you the opportunity. He gave you the money to go. You just were busy helping me. I want everyone around to be happy. I, I know it's going to sound weird, but I was never angry with God. I never asked why me. I always said, just give me the tools to understand how this is better for me and how I'm coming across the other side. But this is a gift I got from Hashem. I don't think from God it's my doing. But since I'm a kid, no matter what happened, I can be sad for a few minutes and I'm back to happy. I, I'm just, I really think that being happy, being positive, being loving, giving over is, is, is healing. I know it sounds weird, but it's healing even to me. If I can make your day better and take away this much pain or put a little smile on your face, I feel better. I don't want anyone to ever feel the feelings I felt. I don't want you to feel alone. I don't want you to feel invisible. I don't want, if there's anything I can do, if I would scream of the rooftops, it's to the parents. Don't alienate your children because you don't understand them because your parents didn't understand you either. You just don't remember because you became, oh my God, I'm mom. I'm big, you're small. I know you don't, but if we really want to be honest with ourselves, did we turn out exactly the way our parents wanted for us? And did they do the way they wanted them? No. So why not love and accept and let God run his world? He didn't put you here to change people. He put you here to love people, to give them love and understanding and compassion. And it's amazing, amazing to see how their lives turn around and they'll walk in I need to give a shout out to my husband and to all my children, including Ben, because everyone is like, you do so much. I have the biggest support team in my house. I run a support group in my house. That means no one can come in those hours of the day. And all of them. I have 10 guests for Shabbos, for Rosh Hashanah. There's 
and no one. They're all so involved and so loving and so expecting and everyone feels like we're part of a family. And when you hear that they got married or that they go to college or that they're clean, it's like, isn't that what we're supposed to do? And how do people hear about, because you, you do this in a very low key way. How do people hear about this? this Everyone this... gets to me who has to get to me. I get people from Cincinnati, I have people from Canada, people from Israel. They'll call me up and say this one. Sometimes they give me a name that I don't even remember who the person is that I help. Um, I will tell you something and um, I really didn't know how much we're doing and I don't do this alone. Shlomo Sadden is a huge part of it. He volunteers too. Um, my friend's kid passed away last year. It's going to be his yard side this week. And when they were sitting Shiva in the house, the sister that found him, her therapist came to visit her. And when we were talking outside, he says, so what do you do? And I said, I don't know, I'm Miriam. He says, what do you do? I said, you know, I help. I'm the voice of the voiceless. I help divorced women that are abused, I help. And he goes, wait, is this Miriam's house where the girls come? No, yeah. And he goes, I am humbled, I am honored. And he was choking up and I'm like, okay, I'm not really good in that. I, I don't like compliments. I don't like interviews because it's not about me. And he tells me, I want you to know, thank you. You don't know what you're doing. And I was so floored. And I said, I guess you have a client that comes here, the getting kippa. He says, I can't answer you, but I want you to know that you have no clue what you guys have been accomplishing in the community with no one knowing. And that to me was like, the, the, the best thing I can hear, that we're making a difference. Even if we're saving, I'm not trying to save the world. I can save the world, but I can save the world for one person at a time. And That's my goal. Of, what kind of services do, do you offer? So, you know, if you just talk about different- Across the board. I'm also a volunteer chaplain. So I got, let's say a phone call in the middle last summer. At 11 o'clock at night, I got a phone call from a young man that told me that his wife is highly pregnant and she's 22 years old. And the year before she had a miscarriage in her nine month and she was traumatized, she's alone. And the doctors want to abort the baby the next morning. And they don't know what to do. They're two kids, they have no clue what to do. Um, I did some research. It took me like 20 minutes. I got, I never knew that in Columbia Presbyterian is a Jewish organization that's specifically dedicated to situations like this, that if you have a pregnancy that's not healthy and you need to make such decisions, there's someone. Got in touch with the head of the department, spoke to her, put them in touch, went with them the next day to the hospital, met with her, met with the doctor. Two months later, he called me and told me, Mazel, we have a healthy baby boy. That is like, I don't know where to tell you. It's like, it, it was just, I, I always pray one thing I should be a right shliach because I don't do everything. But if you get my number, for whatever reason, I won't drop you. I'll introduce you to the right people, whether it's a doctor, whether it's a psychiatrist, it's a, whatever it is that you need. I can't help everyone, but I can be there to listen, to validate you, to tell you I will hold your hand throughout the process and we'll figure this out. You got this, don't give up. And I think that is the most important message. And you told me that you've um, even been working with non-Jewish people as well. So yes, actually my latest client, which I asked her permission if I can talk about her, is a Christian, a Russian Christian. So um, I just wanna tell you more or less, I, per I wrote it down to make it simple. Um, I do now, I'm a life coach currently as well. So what we do is, if you know anything about NLP and timeline therapy, it's the study of the mind and how people process their thoughts and emotions. What we do is we help our clients reprogram their mind and the process from their past, the present and the future. So you can take away negative emotions from trauma that happened to you in the past. Like everyone has a timeline, we can figure it out. You remember the story, we can move away the negative emotions. And it is miraculous what it do, does. We speak to the 
unconscious mind while you are consciously aware that we're talking to him. Um, the, it, it's amazing. It's the first place that they used this technique was in the Israeli army to treat PTSD. It's working with your mind to reshape how your thought process of the past, to leave the past in the past and release emotions. So she came to me because she had some issue. But what I do usually the first hour and a half of free because if I don't have the connection, if I don't connect with you, you don't build report, and I don't feel your pain or your happiness, I don't want to work with you. And she was married to a pastor's daughter, uh, son, sorry, super religious. They're from Russia. They live in Seattle. And the religion was too much for her. And she left. So she lost her children. So surprisingly, it is very similar to any religious story in any religion. Because how many stories do we know in the from world, that religious world, that a mom went to the religion, she lost her kids. Um, we actually just finished this week our 15 sessions. And to tell you that it's surreal. Her daughter, who is Christian, and her husband are all now our clients. Um, religion doesn't matter. It's your heart that matters. My open, listen, God put her, she's God's creation. She has a soul. She has a piece of God in her. So I'm not here to say God only gave me the power to help if you're Jewish. He, I didn't see that anywhere. So I speak Spanish. I speak Hebrew. I speak English and Yiddish. So I work with any of those kind of groups of people. I feel that love and acceptance is important anywhere. It doesn't matter where you are or who you are. It's not about our religion. It's about humanity. It's about love. It's about understanding. And most importantly, it's about bringing awareness to the drug situation. That's how I got to heart too about all the drugs that are coming in illegal in how it's been killing our children. So about four, uh, three years ago summer, I think it was a form, there was 35 Jewish children that died of either accidental overdose or suicide. And I just couldn't, it broke my heart every funeral as a mom. And I decided to do something about it. And that was when I started the support group. And I, I needed to feel like I'm making a difference. Like if a girl or a boy is suicidal, they have someone to talk to, they're not being judged. The only option is not to end it, is to show them that have a value. So I started that support group because of all these losses. So I educated myself a lot more. And what I've realized is I don't care where you come from, where you are, these people are so lonely. And I can't fathom waking up feeling constantly alone, constantly misunderstood. No one cares if you exist. So I have been helping this guy that passed away. His funeral was on Purim. Since he's 18, 28 years, he has been in my life. Wow. Twice I spoke, he called me that he was suicidal and he went to cyborg and rehab and he was fine. This time he didn't want help. But he did call me and told me that the past 28 years, I was the only person to support him, to love him and not to see him just as an entertainer because he was super funny. He had the best sense of humor, like he was amazing. But it was to cover his pain. And no one saw that, everyone just thought he's the clown. And he's like, you're the only person that saw me for a real person. And now he was clean for two years and he was over. He's like, I don't have where to go. There's no one that's gonna support me. I said, you can come back to me. He's like, I can't keep coming back to you. 28 years. I kept on coming back to you. At the end, he ended up committing suicide. But because in his mind, and that's where they're really not well, he told me if I'm gonna come back, I'll go back on drugs and I'll be the abuser again. I can't, I'm in a good, healthy place. I'm not doing that. And I keep on thinking, can you imagine how lonely you have to be and how broken to lay in your bed, he was in sober living, and think about this for two weeks. Okay, I have to die because no one cares if I live. 
That's basically what he said. There's no one that cares enough if I'm alive. How can we fathom that? How can, how can someone process that and go to sleep thinking it's okay not to reach out? How can, I'm sorry I'm going a bit off, but I hope you'll follow me. How can a school make a decision not to accept a kid or a boy in yeshiva? Not thinking of that, that particular point, that loneliness. Everyone gets up in the morning, they have a purpose, they have a reason, you go to school, you go to work, you do something. And you are home alone feeling worthless. As a kid, how do you take this responsibility? So for me, that is like my strongest and most driving force. No one should feel alone. It's such a beautiful world with so many beautiful people. There are so many good people. They're just not educated to just accept and not judge them. We stigmatize them, we judge them. We, the, our entire basis is on their religion. Maybe God had a different plan for them. Maybe that's why it was different. How do you know? Maybe yeah, I yeah. had to change. Maybe I went through, now maybe. I believe with all my heart that I had to go through every challenge and every pain and every night that I cried to become the woman that I am, to give life to the people that don't have a voice. And I wish I can do more, have a bigger platform and educate everyone about addiction. So do you want to just take us um, also up to more recent, your life up to more recent times as well? Just go back to you at the end, last parts of your So life. I got married. I got married almost 10 years ago to my husband that has six boys and I have three girls. And thank God, it's been amazing. Like I said, they're all part of the journey with us. You've met some of them in the house when you came to visit Ben. We're all in this journey together. We married of our youngest. So instead of sharing with you, if it's okay with you, my personal journey now, I'll tell you where my personal journey would like to go. I would really love to be able to look. I'm, I'm, I'm working on two things. Number one is we're working to open a girls' school where you can be, come in if you're a good person, nothing to do with your parents, with your grandparents, with all that stuff. Everyone should have a place to go. But most importantly, there's a very big problem currently with drugs. I'm sure you're aware that China sends fentanyl to Mexico, Mexico creates pills, sends them to America. Um, Percocets, Xanax, and don't remember, and don't remember the third one. They copy and make exactly the same. It looks like real. So when you go and you buy it on the black market, they seized 600,000 pills. Every fourth pill had enough fentanyl to kill you instantly. So that's not a mistake. That's being sent in purposely. So a lot of our children, sadly, OD and die. A lot of them just get sick. My dream and what I'm looking to go forward and hopefully I'll be able to accomplish it. These kids that grow up in abusive homes, these kids that grow up that they were bullied in school, they were misunderstood, they were judged, they were sexually molested, whatever it is that it is. And they end up going on drugs because it takes away the pain. And then they end up being kicked out. And then they end up on the streets and they end up having to do and they spiral down. And finally they end up in rehab. The problem is when they come out, what happens then? They go right back to the toxic environment where they came out from. The family's not educated, nothing changed in their environment. What are the odds they'll stay clean? What are the odds they'll know how to deal with life if no one around them got the tools, you just clean them up. So what I would like to have is like a step down where they go instead of sober living, where they can stay, learn how to have a job, learn how to do your own thing, take care of yourself, but simultaneously educate the family, bring them together before they go home. Let them be, let's say in my house, come the family, come. Spanish habits, get to know your new daughter, your new son, your new wife, because it happens to adults as well. Get to know them. Because I feel if we can, and a lot of the parents are innocent. They have absolutely no education. Some don't want, but I think if you were educated that your child is coming home, if you do X, Y, Z, you enable them. If you do these things, you empower them. I think we would have a much higher success rate of sober, of the kids staying sober and having productive lives. 
So that is really where I would like to. I mean, the word rehab means rehabilitation and getting someone. No, I want them after rehab. Right, but what I'm saying is the whole point of rehab is to rehabilitate someone. It's only half the story getting them off the substance. The question is, how are you going to prevent them in the future? Um, we've only got a few minutes left um, of this interview, so I just wanted to ask you. You know, there's actually some parts of your story that, that I understand you might have wanted to, to miss out. Um, but you yourself have seen adversity. Every day you're dealing with people who are going through serious challenge and struggle and mental pain and heartache. What, do, for all our viewers who hopefully some of them aren't dealing with severe um, challenges at the moment, but as someone that's seen a lot, what is some of the just general life wisdom you would impart to, to, to the average person, the average viewer watching this, some of the things you've learned about dealing with life's ups and downs? For me, <clears throat> I know it's going to sound hard to believe, but if you know me, you'll know it. I have no clue what I'm doing tonight. I have no, yesterday's gone. I literally live every moment right now and enjoy it. I feel so many people go through life for the next moment that we're missing out this second. And if we can be present here now and listen to each other and love each other, nothing else is gonna be a problem. Because just think about it. To me, it's like whatever happens now, I'm now currently talking to you and I don't wanna come like overly passionate, but this is my moment. This is the chance to tell those children, don't buy pills on the black market, don't do that. Tell the parents, go out there, educate yourself, enjoy your child now. If you're having a good moment now, don't think, oh, but yesterday he did drugs. What if tomorrow again? No, this is your moment. Be here, be present, be happy and love them. And you will see how the next moment is positive in the next. That is the most important thing I've learned and never, to judge anyone, just love and accept, because I don't know what I would do if I was you. But living the moment is like trusting God. You can't do anything. So you're breathing, you're alive. Love the moment you're here. Be present right now. Absolutely. And I think this is, su I mean, for me personally, I recognize, you know, more recently, just how much I'm constantly thinking about, yeah, but what about what next? What next? What next? And what about the future? And what's going to, am I going to? And I think in some ways, society trains us to think that way. The economy is based on, you've, well, you've got to have this, you've got to have that, and you've got to, and everyone's constantly running, running, running. And we don't realize that actually, if you keep doing that your whole life, you'll never actually enjoy it because you'll never be in the present. Um, and one other thing I remember you telling me in person was just the pat, the, 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 the 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 in some ways it sounds like a negative statement but actually it's quite liberating to realize how little we control so i wanted to tell you that if we have like 30 more seconds <clears throat> i told you that my mother was diagnosed with cancer three years ago right before pesa she lived for a year and two months but the doctors gave her three weeks this was after my girlfriend literally passed away in my hands of cancer two years before and my late husband so i'm on a roll with people um, that literally pass away when I'm pulled up. The doctor gave her three weeks, so every day we lived like it can be today. So my father was terminally ill before that. And then COVID hit. And then my daughter had a baby that this was all our face and I fractured my spine. The week before she was, my mother passed away and I was there and I had a twisted story because I literally woke up from a dream where she asked me to come over. I cleaned her up and she was nifter right after. I had to watch my dad say goodbye to her, stay with her. Um, six weeks after that, my granddaughter passed away. And when I was in the hospital with my dad. So I didn't get a chance to mourn. Got up, came, but the mom did what I had to do. Um, my youngest daughter got engaged the week, two weeks before Hanukkah. The week later, my husband passed away. I mean, I'm sorry, my father passed away. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. My father passed away. So now I'm in five months, six months, my mother, my grandchild, my father. I don't have the chance to mourn because my baby girl became engaged and her father passed away when she was little. So mm, it's not about me. And then we get COVID and I almost died because I'm asthmatic. And I'm like, no, this is 
wicked sense of humor, I won't make it to her wedding. But fine, if this is what God wants, I can do this. Um, we get over COVID. My husband's best friend passed away on Thursday and his brother on Friday. So now he has Shiva and Shlosha. My daughter's wedding was four days after he got up from Shlosha. I was unavailable for both my parents. And if I'm to show you the video of the wedding, when I'm telling you be present and be happy, my parents were supposed to walk her down. That was her dream since she was little because her father wasn't alive. And they didn't pass away a long time before she got married, literally the week after she got engaged. So she had a lot of loss. And I was like, adamant, this is going to be the most beautiful wedding in the universe. And if you were to be there, ask them, you wouldn't dream the three months that we went through. And I told everyone, if you can come and be present at my daughter's happiest day of her life, do not come. No one is a victim. No one is dying. She's getting married. She's starting a new life. She has a new choice. Be present. Be here. And just thank Hashem that we're here. I could have died of COVID two months before. I didn't. So I think it is so important to understand the value of every moment that we have. You, you don't know. So why am I going to waste the thinking about tomorrow, what you're going to think of me? What if I'm dead? And then what? I wasted my whole day of something that, no one, that you didn't even care? Like, no, I'm, I'm now here present for it. That's it. I'm not unrealistic. Yeah, I plan for Pesach. I'm making Yom Tev. I'm not talking about that. I mean, my state of mind, my joy is this moment. This is this is beyond inspiring, and you you remind me of uh, a story I heard. We made a video about this on JTV a few years ago, about these um, Jews in the camps, one of the camps, and a Nazi guard asked some of them to start dancing, to make fun of them, humiliate them, and they start dancing and they sing Ashrenu Matov Chelkenu. How fortunate are we to be Jewish? Yeah, right. <laughs> We're in the camps, about to probably be killed because of our Jewishness. That's the song they chose. They start dancing and the Nazis scream louder, faster, louder, faster. And they start following orders, going louder and faster. And after a while, they started really getting into it. These Jews who were starved to death in the bitter cold, working every day, knowing that death is imminent. And... They got so jubilant. They basically just like transcended. I'm really not, obviously not comparing, uh, you know, Jews going through the Holocaust, but no, this, no, I get it. This idea of being in, feeling a lot of bitterness within the physical world, and saying actually, we actually because we we are a soul as well, actually just detaching a little bit and transcending it. And, and, and touching to a deeper truth, a deeper truth of, of joy that, is, that, that transcends any temporary pain and loss. Um, and at the end of the story, the Nazis actually got so aggravated, they said, stop, stop. And they sh shot into the air to get them to, to stop because they, they, it, it was no longer an enjoyable sight for them because they realized, they saw in that moment, I think they saw, I think they saw the divine. I think they saw, they realized that... It, you're not going to win because you can't take your spirit only if you let them. Yeah, that's right. Everything that happened to me in my life, the one thing I never let anyone take was my soul. No matter how I was done wrong, no matter what people took advantage, I took them people to my house and they robbed me blind when I couldn't afford it. I, I never focus on those stories. I've learned from them and I learned that they must have been miserable, but if you really think about it, there's always something so joyful. What's the first thing we listen for in a baby when it's born? It's the heartbeat, right? What's a beat? A beat is music. We have always a beat in our heart. There's a song in our heart all the time. If we just want to listen to it and connect to that music and to that beat and to that song and everything else becomes so much less painful and power and, and it doesn't overtake you everything if you can find that that song is there just connect to it sometimes a sad song sometimes a happy song but music is a way to find happiness well 
I hope you can understand why I wanted to invite Miriam onto the show, why I wanted to give a voice to her and all the incredible work she does. Uh, Miriam, you're, you're inspiring. You inspired me when I met you in person. I hope you will inspire our viewers. I want to thank you for the work that you do, for the um, life wisdom that, that you teach to me and so many others. And I just so greatly appreciate your time. And uh, if there's anything that we can do as a channel and a platform to help you, pl please do let us know. It's been a great honor to me. And like I said, we need to bring awareness over and over about mental health, suicide, addiction. We don't have to lose all our children to that. It's our choice. And here's my final thing. Everything that happens in our life is bump. There's only two things you control every morning. Am I gonna be a good or bad person? Am I gonna be happy or sad? That's my motto that I wake up every day. The rest is up to Hashem. So, Happiness is my first choice. And I try to be good. And then it happens. Miriam, thank you. So thank so. you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And I guess I'll get to see you around. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And uh, Tessa Samer. Take care. Likewise. Bye.